Good morning to you. Good morning to you. You guys have cottoned on quite well. Unlike Ant, who's here with us today, I am not much of a tennis player. But even as a novice, I have noticed that in most cases, how you serve will often determine whether you win or lose. And our text today closes out the book of Joshua. We've been on a long journey through the book of Joshua for many months. Uh, Joshua 24 offers a simple question. How's your serve? How's your serve? How is your serve? Twelve times in 11 verses, in the middle of Joshua's final farewell to the people, the subject of serving the Lord keeps cropping up. Now, Joshua made his decision, as you told us, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But now the people have to make their decision. You see, that generation had stood with Joshua and had subsequently seen God do wonderful things under his leadership. But now Joshua was going the way of all the earth and was not going to be there to prod them along to faith and faithfulness. And so each family, each individual Israelite must now decide if they would continue walking in the path of faith and faithfulness. And friends, that's kind of where we are this morning, isn't it? Uh, we may have obeyed in the former days, but the issue is always today. As for you and your house right now, how is your serve? How is your serve? So if you turn with me in the word of the Lord to Joshua chapter 24, we're going to be reading most of the passage in, in, in progression of the points that we make today. Uh, as we turn in the word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that word and ask him to bless our time in his text this morning. Lord Jesus, we're grateful that while we don't have Zessa, I know over at our house, I don't think we've had electricity since 8 a.m. Friday morning, uh, Lord, there's a generator. And so while we lack uh, Zessa from the government, we have uh, fuel to run a generator. We have a generator that's working and serviceable. All the wires are connected and we have lights. And we are grateful for how you provide all the various things that we need. Lord, would you please help us today as we close out the book of Joshua to consider how is our serve? Why do we serve? What do you want out of our service? And how do we need to do it? I pray, Lord, that what could seem technical, the scholars spend a lot of time in one aspect of this text. And uh, colloquially, we spend a lot of time in one verse in this text, but there's so much to this text. So I pray that you would allow its richness and fullness to wash over us and that each person would be individually, personally pricked by the Holy Spirit on some point that there would be something that each person takes away this day, this week, this year, that we indelibly am altered by your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to read verse 1, get us started here. Joshua 24, 1. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, the leaders, the judges, and the officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before the Lord. Now, last chapter, last week, when we were together, we were in chapter 23, and that was a farewell address just to the leadership. 
But Joshua's final farewell is not limited to just the leadership. Yes, the leaders are there. They're in verse 1. But it's specifically, this farewell is directed to everybody, to all the people. Look at verse 2. Joshua said, to all the people. Look down at verse 27. See, he said, 27, to all the people. So our last sermon last week dealt with the second to last farewell address, and that was to leadership. But today's sermon, today's text, today's topic is for everyone, for leaders and followers, for young and old, for rich and for poor, for married and single, for man and woman. This message is for all of us. So Joshua's speech, the part that scholars, if you, if you read commentaries, they're going to spend a whole bunch of time on this issue. They don't always tell you the why of it. Uh, they just tell you the what's. Joshua's speech is very closely paralleling what's called a suzerainty treaty. Now, already I can see your eyes glazing back. Oh, school. Uh, hang with me. This actually has a pertinent purpose that you would probably miss not understanding the ancient Near Eastern context. In the ancient world, there are two basic types of treaties. There is a parity treaty, which is between equals. And there are suzerainty treaties, which are treaties which are between a superior and a lesser. That lesser is the superior's vassal, servant. Are you with me? Okay, so in Joshua 24, God permits Joshua to extremely closely follow the existing suzerainty treaty format that was common in that day in that part of the world. So I'm just going to show you this from Scripture, and then uh, we'll talk about why that's significant. So in a suzerainty treaty, there's always a preamble which describes the greater party. And that's just what we see in verse 2. Verse 2 says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There's your preamble. And then you have a historical prologue in a suzerainty treaty, and it describes the greater party's gracious acts towards the lesser vassal. That's just what we see in verses 2 through 13. Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. And I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob, and to Esau, and all the way on to verse 13. So we have a preamble, we have a historical prologue, exactly like a suzerainty treaty. Next in a suzerainty treaty, we would have stipulations. That's just what we see. Stipulations for the vassal to perform for the greater party's service. We see this exactly in verses 14 and 15, where the Bible says to the Israelites, which would be the vassal, the lesser in this treaty, now fear the Lord your God and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And then you would have in a suzerainty treaty, you would have this thing they call a deposit. And this would be mentioned uh, at this point, and that's just what we see in verse 26. And Joshua recorded all these things in the book of the law. It's a deposit of this treaty. You with me so far? It's so very clearly, uh, clearly paralleling. Okay, after a deposit and a suzerainty treaty, you'd have witnesses, right? Well, look at verse 22, verse 26, and verse 27. Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. And the people said, yes, we are witnesses 
they replied. And the last thing you'd have in a suzerainty treaty would be a series of blessings and curses, right? If you follow the treaty, good things will happen. If you don't follow the treaty, bad things will happen. And we see this in verses 19 and 20. For if you forsake the Lord your God and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you. And afterwards, after he has been already good to you. Now, so what right away? Why are you bothering me <laughs> with the suzerainty treaty? Like, let's get to the real stuff. Well, the reason is this is going to speak directly to our first question today. Our sermon, How's Your Serve, which is a question, isn't it? is going to have five points, which themselves are questions, and they're going to speak to different aspects of our service for Jesus. And so this, this idea of the suzerainty treaty brings us directly to the first question today, and it is a question that many Christians struggle with. And so our first question today is, number one, what are we permitted to do? When we think about our service to God, number one, what are we permitted to do? This is a question of limitation upon us. What are we permitted to do? This is a question of limitation upon us. Now, let me try and make sense of this. Some saints say we can do whatever the Bible does not specifically forbid. For instance, um, let's take it in the context of worship here. These saints were probably the really early adopters in the worship wars, and they brought in drums and electric guitars and um, before many others were willing to do that, right? Uh, their churches today might look more like a nightclub or a warehouse, and I don't know if you noticed this, but there's some Christians that are adamantly opposed to that line of thinking, right? Have you met those folks, right? So there's sort of two groups there. They say, the folks that oppose all that introduction of new stuff, say, wait a minute, we can't do anything the Bible doesn't specifically approve. So these guys say we can do anything the Bible doesn't specifically forbid. And these people say we can't do anything except for what the Bible specifically approves, you see? Uh, and so these people say electric guitars are out and drums are out. Um, but, you know, I guess if it should also be pianos and organs would be out, right? But, but somehow not. In that group. That's interesting. Anyway, just a little bit of hypocrisy for Christians there. Anyway, uh, Joshua 24 demonstrates that God permits us to co-opt morally neutral things. We can utilize the world's technology from medication to microphones to Microsoft Office. We can harness the power of the Internet to send the gospel around the world. Why? Why do we know that? Well, because... God used a modified form of the existing suzerainty treaty in our passage. Do you see that? God used this morally neutral thing that existed to the glory of God. And, and, and you get into the church and you have people ask questions like, you know, why does your church have a constitution and bylaws? You ever had a Christian ask you that question? Well, that's not in the... In the Bible, we don't need to follow the Constitution and bylaws. That's not in the Bible. But the Bible does say to do everything decently and in order. And so the Constitution and bylaws are often very helpful to help us understand how do we do certain things. Um, the New Testament uh, doesn't mention church membership specifically. But the Bible does tell us 
that we're to have member care of our church members and, and that we're to have church discipline. And, and that can involve pushing someone outside of membership. That You could have a situation that's so bad in discipline where you have to excommunicate or remove someone from the church. And so that's why many churches have formal membership. Because if you're going to do member care, you need to know who's a member. And if you might have to discipline someone outside of membership, then you need to have memberships. Do you follow? So this becomes kind of practical. We don't spend time in Joshua. We never know about the suzerainty treaty, but we get to these issues of when people have conflict, they go, well, who cares about the constitution? Who cares about the bylaws? Who cares about membership, right? And you go, well, maybe, maybe there's more to it than that. So what we have here is we have the ability to, to adopt and adapt things that are, that are morally neutral, but helpful. But what we can't do, we can't do with the Bible forbids. You with me on that? We can't do what the Bible forbids. So we can adapt and adopt what the Bible hasn't forbidden. And so if you were to go to uh, uh, 1 Corinthians for just a minute, leave your, your, your finger here in Joshua 24, and let's go to 1 Corinthians uh, starting at verse 23. 1 Corinthians verse 23. This is how the New Testament puts uh, a very helpful spin on what we're seeing in the Old Testament. In 1 Corinthians 10.23, the Bible says everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Ooh. Uh, everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive, the Bible says. Verse 24, nobody should seek his own good, so that's limiting what's constructive or what's permissible, but the good of others. Hmm. Verse 25, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord and everything is in it. So, so we can incorporate anything that isn't expressly forbidden. But just because we can doesn't always mean we should. It takes discernment, right? So we have to consider a matter carefully. Is it beneficial? And what does that mean? Well, the Bible says, is it constructive? Does it build us up? But specifically, the us isn't just me, it's one another, which often gets lost in these discussions. Why do we have this? Why do we have to do this? Because it's beneficial, it's constructive, and it helps us with one another, which goes right back to the worship wars and the church bylaws and membership clauses. You follow? So God has a plan. It's a good plan. So we must consider the matter carefully. Is it constructive? Is it beneficial? Does it help me? Does it help me help others? Galatians 5. Galatians 5 says, For it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Verse 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature but rather serve one another in love. So in our freedoms, we're, we're having a freedom not to sin, but to serve. Do you see that? When most people that are Christians want to talk about freedoms in the context of disagreement, it's because they want to do something not to serve someone, but to serve themselves. You see how we get it a little mixed up? So, so we have freedom. We don't have to live under the withering rules and the gaze of the legalist Pharisee and his man-made rules and shibboleths. However, our freedom is never meant for us to have a cover to feed the flesh. We should use our freedom to serve one another in love. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says this, Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be 
mastered by anything. So we can enjoy our freedom in Christ, but if a legitimate biblical freedom becomes a snare for you as an individual, don't be ensnared by that. You don't want to let your freedom have mastery over you. And I'll use an example that Christians are often divided on. Um, it seems from the New Testament that Christians have freedom to imbibe, right? Jesus turned water into wine. He didn't turn it into Fanta, right? He turned it into wine, okay? And it seemed to have all the properties of wine uh, in that it had alcohol in it, okay? Now, here's the issue. It seems that we have freedom, but there are some saints that have a proclivity towards drunkenness, right? And so don't let your freedom there, if you have a proclivity towards that being a snare for you, then avoid that freedom because it's going to have mastery over you. Do you see? That doesn't mean everyone everywhere has to live under your curtailment. And we can't legislate that. But it means for you, if this freedom is going to ensnare you, then you want to forgo that freedom. Do you with me? You see how these different New Testament verses work together? Okay. So let's go back to our text. In whatever endeavor, not expressly forbidden in Scripture, we have freedom because everything is permissible, and yet I not, must not let myself be mastered by anything. Why must I not let myself be mastered by anything? Because we already have a, a master. <laughs> and if you're mastered by something other than your master, then you have a problem. Right? Okay, so in our service to God, what are we permitted to do? And, and the biblical answer is anything we're not forbidden in Scripture to do. But as we do that, we must always ask, is this beneficial to me? Just because I can doesn't mean I... That's right. And is this constructive for us? So, so it's not just because I can, so I should, but just because I can, is it also helpful to those around me in this case? Does it help me serve others and lastly, will this have mastery over me if I give it an opportunity? Okay, so that's our first point. Our second question today is, what does God want us to do? What does God want us to do? Now, this is a question of God's aspirations for us. What does God want us to do? And we see this in verse 14. Now, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness, and throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt. So it's not the Nile River, it's some other river, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. And there are basically three commands here. When we ask what does God want us to do, and we're looking at this question of God's aspiration for us, there are three basic commands in this text. Number one is to fear the Lord. Number two is to serve the Lord with all faithfulness. And number three is to throw away all our false gods. You see those? It's right there in the text, right? So, so let's take them in order. To fear the Lord doesn't mean to live in perpetual, you know, uh, cowering under God. It means to revere the Lord. Uh, it, it means to put him first in our lives, to be, to be more worried about pleasing God than pleasing our boss or our spouse or our parents or our own egos or agendas or addictions or whatever, now, this isn't because God is a tyrant. This is because God is the only entity truly worthy of our submission. But also because God cares about us as his creatures. You see, God isn't a tyrant. 
He doesn't want to put us in positions of potential peril. God is God, and we are not. God is all good, and we are not, right? The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? There are things that I want that aren't actually good for me. Do you ever want those things? Yeah. Proverbs 1 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and discipline. You see, I can fear the Lord, I can revere the Lord, I can submit to the Lord, and what he says is best, and, and, and I'll end up living wisely. Or I could live foolishly. Do you see that? That contrast? Proverbs 14 and 16 both tell us, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is death. Twice Proverbs says that. There is a way that seems right to me, but it's not right, you see, because the heart is desperately wicked. So we need to fear the Lord. We need to put him first. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but it seems like the world is growing a bit darker and the way forward seems to get a little murkier each day. Well, how do I keep doing the right thing? And so I want to encourage you, don't grope in the dark or you will stumble. Instead, humble yourself by letting his word be a lamp unto our feet. If the world's getting darker, you need a lamp. You know where you find that lamp? The word of God. The word of God hasn't changed the word of God is still able to speak to every situation. You have everything you need for life and godliness in Christ and in scripture's instruction. The question for the Christian is, do we know the word well enough to have light where we might stumble? All right. So the Bible says, he knoweth the way. Are you familiar with that? Do you know, do you know who that's referring to? Jesus Christ. He knoweth the way. A lot of people say, I don't know which way to turn. I don't know which way is up. I don't know what's going on. He knoweth the way. The book of Joshua, we already learned, we have not been this way before. The book of Joshua, Joshua's like, we have not been this way before. Do you ever just feel like, I used to know what to do, but now I'm not really sure what to do anymore? I'm confused. Well, guess what? The people of God, the book of Joshua, we have not been this way before. The New Testament, he knoweth the way. He is the way. Do it his way. Okay, now, there are uh, other aspects to this command. The second thing we see is God wants us to, to serve him with what? With all faithfulness. And, and so if you were to break that into two pieces, there's, there's number one, serve him, and number two, do it with all faithfulness. So let me just ask you the question, Christian. Is serving Jesus your first priority? Uh, for instance, in, in the area of, of money, when you get paid or if you experience a sudden financial windfall, is your first thought to give the first fruit back to him first? And if not, there's probably some recalibration because Jesus tells us where your treasure is, there your heart is. Uh, but it's the same, not just with money, it's the same with time. You know, you show somebody, you show somebody their bank account and, and, their, and their schedule and you get a good idea of who their God is, right? And so look at your time. Do you view your time as this? Well, I, I have work and then I have family and then I have my hobbies and, you know, and then I have Jesus. That's how practically a lot of us work out the week. If we're really honest in how we think about our time. Any time we have is a gift from God. He's given us our days. He gave us, in, in him we have life and breath and we have our being, right? He could take that away. You're a steward of this precious gift of time. 
It is a temporary gift in a temporal world. Jesus says to us in John 9, 4, as long as it's day, we are to do the work of him who sent me because night is coming when no one can work. And so our time is a wonderful opportunity to serve Jesus. Now serve the Lord, serve him not sporadically, or spasmodically, but we want to serve him consistently. We want to serve him faithfully. And I've been in ministry for 25 plus years, and, and, and sadly, some saints, I've seen this pattern. And they're like this in their service to Jesus. Have you met these Christians? And they're super up, and they're doing everything, and then they're not at church for six months, and then they're super, you know, like, and then they come back, and they rededicate, and they get excited, and they're all into everything, and they join everything, and they do everything, and they're at the men's breakfast and the left-handed, red-headed midget ministry. They're doing everything. You know, they got, they got three bowling pins and they're juggling on a unicycle and, you know, and then nothing for like a year. We don't see them. Do you, do you, have you seen this? I've seen this over and over and over. Some saints get all fired up for a season and then they get all tuckered out and they fade away until another day. But friends, the Bible here says we need to serve with all faithfulness. We need to serve him perseveringly not just in streaks. Streaks are ineffective, and streaks will produce a confusing witness to our kids and our coworkers and our neighbors. Because your kids grow up and you see, Dad is on fire for Jesus this week, and, and next month he's in the gutter and doesn't even want the name uttered. It's very confusing to your coworkers and your kids. Streaks are not just ineffective in our service, they're unbiblical in our service. God wants to make us like Christ. And therefore, God wants to develop something very Christ-like in us. He wants to develop perseverance. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so he wants to make Christians consistent in their service, not streaky. Being hot one week and cold the next is not God's best plan for you. Serving him with all faithfulness is God's best plan for you. And that brings us to the third component of this issue. The third command is to throw away the competition, the competing gods in our story. In fact, it's really interesting. The most elucidation of these three commands fall on this one issue. Look at verse 14. He spends a lot of time on it. Throw away the gods your forefathers worship beyond the river. That's the first one. And in Egypt, the second one, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day who you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites, that's where they are right now, in whose land you are right now living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We know that we will serve the Lord, but we don't ever pay any attention to the verses that preceded Right? So there are three false gods that, 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 that will try to grip you, that will try to have mastery over you, that you must not let them have mastery over you. And the first god is what I'm going to call hereditary gods. Hereditary gods. These are the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river. <laughs> okay, beyond the river is referring to the river Euphrates in Mesopotamia. How long ago was that for the Jews? <coughs> And the answer is, Abram came from where? Ur of the Chaldeans, beyond the river. And the whole time they've been a people of God, they supposedly had left those gods, right? And yet the Bible's saying, 
They didn't always do it. That was a super long time ago to the Israelites. And yet somehow, in some way, these idols still grip them. They are the deep idols that come from our kinship and our ethnicity. Uh, in regards to a hereditary idol, these are like our family's cultural idols. Let me show you what that looks like in 2023. I've had people tell me, Sean, I can't become a Christian because all of my relatives are Hindu. What does that have to do with you becoming a, a Christian? You follow? Well, what are they saying? That their heredity is their destiny, but it isn't. I've had people tell me, well, I can't become a Christian because all of my relatives are Mormons or Muslims, or I can't be born again because all my family is Roman Catholic. You follow? Do you see? We're no different. The heart of man is no different. Or I've had people, it's not just in coming to Jesus, it's, it's, it's submitting to Jesus in walking with Jesus. I've had friends, you know, well, I'm Irish. And in my family, we seem genetically hardwired to trigger tempers, that Irish temper, right? Or, or certain addictions, right? And you've talked to people and they just really, they say, well, I just can't be who God wants me to be because of my genetic hereditary and, and, and cultural background. I hear this in Zimbabwe, so I don't wanna step on anybody's toes, but I'm gonna step on your toes. Um, I've heard in Zimbabwe, People say things like, well, in my culture, we pray to Jesus and our dead ancestors. It seems to be you pray to Jesus or, and you're each going to have to wrestle with this. If any of those things have been true for you, it doesn't work that way. God is calling us to throw away the idols our forefathers worship beyond the river. And that's not always easy, is it? Because we have such a deep ingrained sense of, but this is who I am. No, you are who you are in Christ. In Christ is who you are. Your citizenship is in heaven. It doesn't matter what your passport says or where your people came from. God says, throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river. You see, that was their choice, but right now it's, it's your choice. And so, my friends, don't let your past dictate your present, or you may well not like your future. The second idolatry we see in this passage that we have to abandon is what I call environmental gods, our environmental gods. These are the, the gods around us in our environment that we personally used to worship, not my family, but me. Um, for instance, you went to high school somewhere, and you hung out with some people in high school, and maybe some of those people rubbed off on you in certain ways that are unhelpful and unhealthy, right? Your friend group, unless they were all just wonderful, mono, you know, Christian super they all became pastors, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe you spent some time in the military. I did. And, and the Marines shaped you in some kind of unbiblical ways. But maybe you spent some time in your 20s sowing your wild oats. And now you have some entrenched habits that you're no longer so wild about as a Christian. And God says, throw away the stuff you serve. In Egypt. You hear that? You did this. It wasn't your family. This is your choice. Make a conscious choice to live for Christ. You know why? Because the old is gone and the new has come. 
The third idol in our passage here, the final gods that we're told to let go of are, are the sort of sinful patterns that are, that are per- pervasive in our present culture all around us. We're exhorted to throw away the gods of the Amorites in the land we're now living in. So this wasn't my parents' choice. This wasn't my choice. This is just where I am, and this seems to be everyone else's choice right now. In modern Harari, if you look around, it seems as though people are finding their worth in possessing the most and the best possessions. But God says your worth is found in in Christ. Um, The media, if you're a lady, tells you that your externals are what matter. Uh, So you need to do hot yoga and you need to live off cold yogurt until you can flaunt that you're gaunt so nobody gives you a nasty taunt. With me? But Christ says your beauty should be first and foremost on the inside, not exclusively from outward adornment, but, but rather from the unfading beauty of a gentle spirit in submission to Christ. Same for men. Uh, gentlemen, you know, you can under, you, bigger biceps are not bad, but they're not the be-all and end-all. The Bible says physical training is of some value. You can open pickle jars, right? <laughs> but godliness has value for all things holding the promise for both this present life and the life to come. So lift weights, but pursue godliness. The point is, we have to choose to let go of the gods that want to have mastery over us. Amen? The gods of our parents' culture and its potent pull, the gods of our past and its destructive, addictive habits, the gods of our present culture that just every moment of every day, every minute is trying to squeeze us into its mold. Amen? Instead, we are to fear God and serve him with all faithfulness. So if we know what, what, what limitations are upon us and, and we now know God's aspirations for us, it brings us to our third question today. How? How should we approach serving God? How should we approach serving God? And this is a question of attitude in us, isn't it? How should we approach serving God? This is a question of attitude in us. I want you to look back at Joshua's challenge in verse 14 and notice the people's glib response immediately in verse 16. Verse 14, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your forefathers, worship beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And without missing a beat, without skipping a second, the people just immediately go to verse 16. And then the people answered, Far be it from us that we forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was our Lord. God himself, who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes, he protected us on our entire journey and among the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Now, at first glance, that's all we have. We go, wow. Right? You know, these people uh, are very obedient, right? But Joshua knew they were just giving Lip service to Jesus. It was time for Sunday school talk among the saints. Nobody's going to live this way, but let's all agree and pretend that we will. Hmm. Listen to how Joshua responds from their too quick from the lips, shoot from the hip reply. Verse 19, Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. 
He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and bring an end of you after he's been so good to you. So Joshua points out that God is, is jealous for us to put him first. The first commandment is have no other gods before me. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And so Joshua knew it's really easy to say, I will follow. It's much harder to actually follow. To walk the walk is harder than to talk the talk. So Joshua reminds them, hey, God is forgiving. But if you're just sort of playing with God, God's not going to sort of play along with this game. If you're playing both sides against the middle, if you're dabbling in your sin for thrills and dabbling in Jesus for fire insurance, you're lukewarm. And, and those things get spat out. Verse 21, the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. And then Joshua said, okay, you're witnesses against yourselves that you've chosen to serve the Lord. And they said, yes. We are witnesses. So in verse 21, God's people say, we're in. And so Joshua says, look, walk the walk. Verse 23. Now then, Joshua says, what's he say? Throw away the foreign gods that are among you. Uh-oh. <laughs> and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. You see, this is kind of shocking. After 400 years of slavery... In Egypt, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, after seven years of combined combat operations in the book of Joshua, God's people are finally in the land. They're finally getting all the stuff that they've ever wanted from God and heard promises from God. And, 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 and they knew exactly how they got there. They got there by God. And now 25 years later, 25 years of, of peace, the end of Joshua's life, about 25 years have passed since combined combat operations. And what are they doing? They write back to the gods that got them in all the trouble. Joshua said, look, you can't have it both ways. Verse 24, and the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. And on that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people there at Shechem, and he drew up for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone, he set it up under the oak tree near the holy place of God. He said, see to the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words of the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. So point three, is to remind us that our attitude should be sincere and that our pledges shouldn't just be glib and shallow and churchy, right? Point two showed us that we should, what we should do to serve God, to fear him, to serve him and, and with all faithfulness and to purge from ourselves all the idols that can have mastery and ensnare us. And so now we come to a question that Christians are often confused about. Why? Why? Why should we serve God? And I think Christians have some pretty unchristian answers when you listen to them answer this question. Why should we serve God? This is a question of motivation amongst us. So point four today, why should we serve God? A question of motivation amongst us. Why should we serve God? Let me tell you why we shouldn't serve God. We can't, it can't be to make him love us more. And yet that's often what people kind of think. If I go to church more, if I give more, God will love me more. You see that? That's works-based righteousness, isn't it? That's the dead religion that we've been saved from. The Bible says, while you were at yet Christ's enemies, Christ died for... Before you were ever born, Jesus already died for you. Before you committed your first sin, Christ died for you. 
So it can't be to earn God's love because God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. Christ came to seek and save the lost. He's seeking sinners, and sinners have sinned. Kind of definitional. But religion says you can earn God's favor. Religion says that if I do enough good stuff, God will love me. God says, no, 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 I love you. (laughs) And accept my grace and receive my love. And then the Bible says once you've received God's love, you should respond to God in love. Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. You see the difference? One is a response to God's love. The other is a way to bribe God so he'll give you love. There's a big difference between the biblical answer and man's dead religion. Look at verses 2 through 13 and pay attention to the transition verse, verse 14. Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Naor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. So were they following God? They were not following God. They were far from God. They didn't even know who God was. But I took your father Abraham. Did Abraham come to God or did God come to Abraham? God came to Abraham. God reached out in love. God started this thing from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. And I assigned him the hill country of Seir to Esau. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. And then I sent Moses and Aaron. Why? Because he loved them and he was helping them have the law. And I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there. And I brought you out. And when I brought your fathers out of Egypt and came from the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea, but they cried out to the Lord for help. And he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and he brought the sea over them, and he covered them. And you saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. And then you lived in the desert for a long time. And I brought you to the land of the Amorites, where you're living right now, (laughs) who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you. And you took possession of their land when Balak, the son of Zippor, the son of Moab, or the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel. He sent Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I wouldn't listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again. And I delivered you out of his hand. Verse 11, then you crossed the Jordan and you came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. But, want to guess? I, I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, and also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. This land you have, it's not because you want it, because I gave it, though you had a part in it. Right? Verse 13, so I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat them and eat in vineyards and olive groves that you didn't plant. Now here it comes. All of this, God did all of this. 13 verses, God did all this. Now verse 14, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worship beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. Do you see the order? Because of God's lavish love, we respond in love. And love looks like faith and faithfulness to faithful Jesus, doesn't it? If you love me, obey my commandments. Not if you want me to love you, obey my commandments. That's religion. Big difference. Big difference. 
Because God did all this for us, we should respond by loving him. Romans 12 puts it this way. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Why do we offer our lives? In view of what God's already done for us, in view of God's mercy. And so don't be a Pharisee, you see. Don't expend your energy trying to earn favor with God. Be a biblicist and accept God's grace through faith and then love him back through faithfulness. That's the Christian way. Enjoy God's great love already lavished upon us in Christ, and then respond to Christ by loving him back in faithful obedience. This brings us to the last point in our last chapter, in our last time together, for what will probably be about seven or so months. Point five is this. Ready? Point five is question five. What happens when we serve God? What happens when we serve God? This is a question of consequence to us. What happens when we serve God? This is a question of consequence to us. And we see this in verses 28 through 33. Then Joshua sent the people away, each to his own inheritance. And after these things, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Sarah in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. And Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. And Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the tract of land that Jacob bought for a hundred pieces of silver from the sons of Hamor, the son of Shechem. This became the inheritance of Joseph's descendants. And Eleazar, son of Aaron, that's the priest, died. And he was buried at Gibeah, which had been allotted to his son, Phinehas, in the hill country of Ephraim. There's three people mentioned here. We talk about what happens when we serve God. It's a question of consequences. There are three people that we see the consequences of serving God. We see Joshua the general, Joseph the patriarch, and Eleazar the priest. And all three of them imperfectly but consistently serve God throughout their lifetimes, often under very difficult circumstances. And God saw their faithfulness, and he rewarded their faithfulness. Therefore, the book ends with three funerals for three faithful followers, who entered into the rest God promised. The rest wasn't while they were living. That's when they needed to be working. The rest was when they got the rest that God promised. Pay particular attention to verse 31, though. Israel served the Lord. Good. Throughout the lifetime of Joshua. Good. And the elders who outlived him. Good again. And who experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. Good. And here's what's not good. What's the next book of the Bible? Judges. Judges. You see, Joshua's faithfulness left an indelible impact on his generation. All through his lifetime, they served the Lord. In fact, he left such an impact that the people he trained in leadership, as long as those people were still there, the people Joshua had trained, the people were faithful. But once the faithful leader was gone and the faithful people he discipled were gone, the people were no longer faithful. The faithfulness was was gone. For 332 years during the period of Judges, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. 
the Bible says about the period of the judges. Because you see, each generation must choose for themselves this day whom you will serve. I've met many people that tell me how their grandmother was a great saint. Fantastic. How are you doing? That's my question. I have people tell me, my mom and dad loved the Lord, and they were faithful, and they were faithful in a war and a difficulty and this and that. And I say, that's great. What a great heritage. How are you doing? How are you doing in your walk with Jesus? Each generation must choose for themselves who they will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. How about you house your serve? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for your word that is a lamp unto our feet. Please, Lord, would you give something that sticks with each of us in a powerful way that leads us closer to you and farther from the various idols, the idols of our past, the idols of our heritage, the idols of our culture in the present, and closer to fearing you and serving you with all faithfulness, not streakiness, but faithfulness, that, that we would endeavor to be like our Lord Jesus, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We know that we are fallen, and we know that we are as grass. We are sheep. None of those things are super complimentary, but they are super revelatory in how we are. We Men are like dust. And yet, Lord, we ask that you would use us because you have entrusted this great treasure of Jesus Christ in these jars of clay that we walk around in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.